Good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you open to Philippians chapter 3? Philippians chapter 3. While you're turning there, for those of you who are our guests this morning, uh, my name is Andrew Bates. I'm not our normal teaching, preaching pastor here at Faith. That's Pastor Justin. Uh, He's out of town this morning. Um, I'm an associate pastor in charge of family ministries and a few other things. I'm excited to be able to open God's Word with us this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, If you're using a Pew Bible this morning, that's page 981. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 together. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we need you in this moment, in this time. We need your spirit to reveal truth to us. So I pray that as we seek to understand the words that you have for us today, that our hearts would be open to truth, that we would recognize who you are and what you've called us to become. Lord, it is our prayer this morning that we would come to know you truly. And that our understanding of you would change the way we live our lives. So we praise you, and we praise your wonderful name this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It is that time of year again. One year has ended, and another year has just begun. You know what that means, right? New Year's resolutions. It's this time-honored tradition all around the world. Why? Why every year do we come to this time and commit ourselves to things that we will not ultimately follow through with. I mean, I think ultimately our hope is for what? A better life, right? We hope that uh, we have this innate desire for better, to grow, to uh, be something who we have not been last year maybe. And I think ultimately the goal in that is that if we can become better, if we can improve ourselves, then we'll be happier. There'll be more fulfillment in life. I was looking up different 
stats when it came to New Year's resolutions. According to research, about 60% of us admit to making New Year's resolutions. And I I think I know why, because the next stat is is alarming. Of that 60%, only 8% will actually follow through with them. And, and, and do them throughout the entire year. The top five for this year, you can guess at least the top three. Diet or eat healthier. That's number one. Coming in a close second at 65% is exercise more. Number three is to lose weight. I guess if you do all three, then you're good to go. Number four, save more, spend less. Number five, learn a new skill or hobby. I, I think I've preached this message at the church for the last four years, this, this first message of the new year. And each year as I look at different stats and, and wonder if uh, things have changed, they're always the top five. They never change. It's amazing to me. And yet every year we're in this cycle, we're making these resolutions, doing the same thing over and over again. So whether you're in the 60% category, actually making resolutions or goals for yourself this year or not, the reality is that the decisions you make, the life that you live, the things that you pursue will reveal what you value the most. They reveal what you are pursuing. And and in that pursuit, you are setting goals for yourself. When it comes to your spiritual life, that goal, that pursuit matters. But what also matters is not simply the goal that you set for your spiritual life, but how you pursue that goal. Paul, in our text this morning, is going to reveal to us, through his own personal experience, what the goal of every believer should be. What is the spiritual goal for every one of us in this room this morning as followers of Jesus? But not only that, he's going to reveal and show us how to achieve that goal. So we're going to learn what our New Year's resolution should be as believers in Christ. But not only that, he's going to equip us and show us exactly how to reach that goal. To do this, we're going to look at three things. Paul's caution. Paul's caution in verse 2 through 3. So this is for you note takers that really need to get all three of these. Paul's caution in verses 2 through 3. Paul's credentials in verses 4 through 7. And Paul's confession in verses 8 through 11. Paul's caution, Paul's credentials, and Paul's confessions. Now, in order to, to understand what Paul is doing here in Philippians 3. We need just a quick, brief background check of how we get here to the middle of the book of Philippians, right? Paul finds himself writing to the church in Philippi, a group of believers, and he's writing back to a church that he has a very close relationship with. By close relationship, I mean this is a church that Paul started. He endured suffering and hardship. In starting the church at Philippi, he was put into prison, and that's the story of the Philippian jailer, that Paul led to Christ while he was there. Paul left the city and, and continued on his missionary journeys. And this church stuck with him all along the way. They followed him through his missionary journeys. They supported him in prison. And Paul finds himself writing this letter back to the church because as he sat in prison, the church at Philippi cared so much about him that they sent Epaphroditus to him with news and an encouragement about how things are going back in Philippi. Most recognize this book as the book of book of joy, right? Paul is trying to encourage these Philippians how to have joy in the midst of suffering, joy in the midst of trials. And we see that even in verse 1. If you look at verse 1, he says, finally, my brothers, my brothers in Christ, rejoice in the Lord. So this is a command. Finally, you followers of Christ, rejoice in the Lord. 
to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. So Paul's going to go on in verse 2 and following, and he's going to write something the Philippians already know. And, and I would argue that most of us in this building this morning already know exactly what Paul's going to write about as well. As we, as we work through what Paul is saying, you, you'll, it'll ring true to you. You'll, you'll understand exactly what he's saying, where he's coming from. But Paul wants to remind them of these things because he knows if they're not living these truths out, they won't have a joyful life in Christ. They won't have a successful life. They won't be able to reach the goal that he's going to lay forth for us later on in the text. So let's begin by looking at Paul's caution. Paul's caution in verses 2 through 3. I'm just going to read verse 2 one more time for us. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's one way to get our attention this morning, right? Uh, Paul's caution, look out. He repeats it three different times. Beware, watch out for this one group of people. So he's going to describe one group of people with three very startling, strong words, right? So he's talking about the Judaizers. The entire book of Galatians is Paul writing about these Jews that they call Judaizers that are believing in the gospel of Jesus, but they're doing something with it. They're believing in the gospel of Jesus, but then they're adding to it their Jewish customs, their, their laws, their regulations. And they're basically saying, great, faith in Christ, awesome. Plus, you need to do these things. So faith in Christ, salvation, righteousness comes, though, from this, these things that we're going to add to your faith in Christ. And Paul is clearly identifying these Judaizers as dangerous. He's identifying them as enemies of the gospel. He says, if you listen to them, you'll never achieve your goal. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament at all, you'll, you'll recognize the irony of the words that Paul uses to describe the Judaizers. So he's going to describe the Judaizers, and he calls them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Now, this first one, I must admit, we're in trouble. We live in a, such a pet culture today, okay? Uh, everyone, it seems, has a pet of some sort. And, it, and the reason why we say that is, According to one survey conducted just recently, the average American will spend more on the lifetime of their pet and their health care than their own personal health care in their entire life. That's amazing to me. I did not know that. Uh, but we take that a step further, and a survey that was just conducted this past January showed that, Amer- that Americans, just us, not the world, spent $73.1 billion on their pets. $73.1 billion. So that's so kind. So we live in a, a pet culture, and we begin with, watch out for the dogs, okay? So I realize that I have just, Paul, not me, Paul has just offended most of you in this room, okay, for you dog lovers. We, the reason why I say that is we have to detach ourselves from our furry friends and the love that we have for them and understand how the people in the first century, how Paul's listeners would have heard, watch out for the dogs, Right? So that's why I say if you're familiar with your Old Testament, because this is actually an argument, a term that's used throughout the entire Old Testament. And ultimately, ultimately, it's used to represent everything that's unclean and everything that's filthy. When you hear the word dogs, it represents in the, in the New Testament everything that's unclean, everything that's filthy. They were scavengers. I mean, I guess the closest comparison would be a coyote to us is what a dog was to them. Like, we don't want to have a coyote into our home and, and cuddle up to it and pet it and groom it, right, and feed it. They, they were scavengers. 
they, they preyed on the weak. The Jews used this term to, for, to represent anyone and everyone outside the community of God. So, so notice, the Jews who, who boasted in their righteousness, Paul uses this term to describe them as outside the community of God, as not followers of Christ, as not Christians. So Paul is trying to help us understand, the church at Philippi understand, that as he is identifying this group, he says, beware, watch out for these people because they're dangerous. They're going to attack you. They're going to draw you away from your goal. They're going to draw you away from Christ himself. But he continues, he says, look out for the evildoers. Now again, think of the Jewish people. They prize themselves and their adherence to the law. They prize themselves and they viewed themselves as completely righteous. And as they, as they, the more that they followed the law, the more righteous, the better people that they were. And so in their mind, they're the ultimate good, good doers of their day. And yet Paul says, you're not good. You're not right. They are evil. They're evildoers. They're, they're acting evil. Watch. In trying to adhere to the Old Testament law, the law that God established in the Abrahamic covenant, in all of that time that, they, that God commanded his chosen people to follow him by doing these things, they viewed all of those acts, all of the law, as righteous. And so the Jews were saying faith in Christ plus righteousness that comes from the law. And Paul says, that that mentality, that thinking that you and I can do something to add righteousness to ourselves is evil. It's opposed to God. But then he ends with, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is certainly the most graphic description for this group of people because Paul is using a term that is closely similar to the term of circumcision which is the, God's original covenant with his people back in Genesis chapter 17 when God calls his people to circumcise themselves at a certain time, at a certain age, to separate themselves physically from the other people of the world. It was a, a physical mark of being separated unto God, a physical mark of holiness. And Paul says, because Christ has come, he came to abolish those things. And because he did, When you do physical acts such as circumcision to yourself, all you're doing in in hopes of gaining righteousness with God, all you're doing is mutilating yourself. You're you're cutting yourself for for no reason. It, It does no good. So Paul puts this caution out to the church in Philippi. But do we not have the same people among us today? I mean, think for a moment. Today, we use terms like legalist to describe these people. People that add to their salvation all things religious to make them more holy, more righteous. Church attendance, reading their Bible, prayer, evangelism, giving to the church. All, all good things. But they add to it in thinking that if they accomplish these things, they are more right with God. If I just give a little bit more money to the church... Go ahead. We're in a building process, right? No. If I just give a little bit more money to church, now God's going to love me. More. I'm more righteous because of that, right? But extreme legalists in our day would even add to that, would they not? Now they're going to add dress codes and dress standards, and you have to have your hair cut a certain way, and you have to avoid certain locations, and uh, be careful of your entertainment in these ways, because if you, if you do this, it's sinful. If you do this, then God doesn't love you. But if you abstain from all of these things, now you're more righteous before God. 
We do this with food. We do this with drink. We, do, we can just keep on going. The list could keep going and growing. Why? Because it's a man-made list that we make up. We make up this list in hopes that we will feel that we will be separated from just everyone else because I do these things. I'm more righteous. Paul calls it evil. Evil doers. Dogs. Outside the family of God. But in this caution, he encourages the church. Look at verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Paul says we. Watch. The circumcised Jew, Paul, identifies himself not with the Jews, but with the uncircumcised Gentiles that make up the church of Philippi. And then he says, we are the circumcision. They're completely uncircumcised. What's he saying here? He says, circumcision has nothing to do with what we're talking about. He's drawing their attention back to the heart. Even in the Old Testament, uh, when God talks about circumcision, he places the emphasis on the heart. I mean, think of the passage that Colin just read for us in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. It says, and the Lord God will what? Circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. In Romans 2, Paul says, for no Jew, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. From the very beginning of time, God has, has had the desire to change you and I from the inside out, not the outside in. And, and the Jews place, the Judaizers were placing faith in Christ and then working on that change, the outward change from the outside in. And Paul says, you have it backwards. God has transformed us by the Spirit of God to change us from the inside out. And then he gives three qualities of what the true Christian actually looks like here in verse 3. Three qualities. The first one says, we, Christians, worship God by the Spirit. Now, when we hear that word worship, a lot of different things are running through your minds right now. We talk about worship service, worship style, worship music, worship experience. This is not the type of worship that he's thinking of when he says we worship by the Spirit of God. The the term here is actually understood as rendering service to God. So to the Jew, when the Jew hears this word worship, he's going to attach it to rituals, traditions, the temple, sacrifices. And for Paul, he's trying to explain to them and show them that we don't worship that way. We We worship God by the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, from, from the heart. That's where our worship comes from. Here's what that means for us. Worship is not a set of rules or categories or list that, we, that can be accomplished. Worship is a way of life. It's a lifestyle. This is what Paul is calling us to. We, we don't simply worship because we're inside this building. We certainly are worshiping, 
This is a part of our worship, corporate worship, gathering together and worshiping God, commanded in the New Testament, is, is a, a form of worship. But this worship is informed by our worship on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and what you're doing at home. Don't think that you could live Monday through Saturday however you want to live. And then show up on Sunday and somehow now, because we're in this place, we are worshiping God. Because worship is not a set of rules or actions that we do. Worship is a lifestyle. It comes from our heart. We are worshiping through the Spirit of God. The second quality is he says that true believers glory in Christ Jesus. This word glory is the same word for boast, to exalt, to lift high the name of Jesus. The Jews were lifting high their own self-righteous selves. And here he says, we don't, we don't lift up high ourselves and our deeds and our works of righteousness. We lift high, we exalt, we boast in Christ. Galatians 6, verse 13 through 15, it says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast. This is the same word for glory, ready? Far be it from me to boast, except where? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, a new heart. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, far be it from me to boast in absolutely anything. Christians, we don't glory, exalt anything that we do. We only exalt We only glory, we only boast, we only lift high the name of Jesus because he alone went to the cross. He alone was the perfect sacrifice. He alone is God. He is what Paul says in in the next phrase, the reason we put no confidence in the flesh. True believers put no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in in our upbringing, in our gifts, in our talents, in our possessions, in our traditions, in our styles, in our dress. I mean, we could keep going again. We put no confidence in anything of our flesh. Why? Because all of our confidence is in Christ. It's so easy for this thinking to creep into our life and into our minds, is it not? I mean, think about your New Year's resolutions. If you're anything like myself, uh, what I do when I want to make a goal or set a goal for myself, I have to make a list. I have to write it out right? And so things I want to accomplish, I write it out. And so even in thinking of my New Year's resolutions, I, I wrote them out. These are my goals for the year, right? And so you write them down, you pin them down, but it's easy to look at that list and think highly of yourself if you were to accomplish it. Like, I, let's say that on your list this year, you said, I will pray, I, I, will, I want to have a better prayer life. And then maybe you examine that a little bit more. I want, I want to pray more often. I want to pray for a longer periods of time. Um, maybe on your list this year, I want to work out my temper, my anger. Maybe uh, I will engage my spouse and my family more. I wake up early to read my Bible instead of putting it off at night because somehow, somehow that is much better, right? I will read through the Bible in a year. I would ask for a show of hands. I'm actually going to attempt to do that this year, okay? Uh, it's, I'm not saying these things are bad. I'm not saying that, that these things are bad. But how easy it is to look at that list and say, Wow, I will be so spiritual if I can accomplish that list. God is going to love me. 
so much more than he does that person next to me in the pew. Why? I read through the Bible this year, chronologically. Did you do that? I'm in Job already. (laughs) Where are you at? Leviticus, right? I mean, think about it. Yeah, that's where everyone stops. We make these lists. We make these lists. And then, even as Christians who have placed our faith and trust in Christ, what do we say? That list will make me righteous. That list will help me. That list will make me more spiritual. And this is exactly what Paul is warning us against. It's exactly what the Judaizers are doing. So Paul has given us this caution. Watch out for people who add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're evil. They're separated from God. They're not a part of his family. They're not friends of God. And then he says, be encouraged because you can identify what the true believer looks like there in verse 3. And then Paul does something interesting in verses 4 through 7. Our second point, we have Paul's caution. Number two, we have Paul's credentials. Paul's credentials. Let's read verses 4 through 7. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. These are Paul's spiritual credentials, his, his resume, if you will, before salvation. Think about what Paul is trying to accomplish here. He says, look, all right, Philipp, he's talking to the church at Philippi. He's, I've been there. I've been where these Judaizers have been. Okay, this is, these are my credentials. I, none of those things are going to bring you joy because I know I've been there. You think you have a good list, he says? Check out my list. My list is better than any of those Judaizers. The Judaizers are saying, we've been circumcised. We're a part of God's chosen people from the Old Testament, from the very beginning of time. We are part of God's people. We know what righteousness looks like. You should listen to us. And Paul, Paul steps in. He's that friend that always has the better story, but he, this time he actually does. He steps in with his trump card. He goes, nope, no, whatever these guys think they have, I have more. My story is better. And he's going to prove it. He doesn't just say that he's more important, that he has a better list of spiritual credentials than they do. He actually does. So Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. My parents follow the Levitical law perfectly. In Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, you see that God commands his people to be circumcised on a very specific day. That was Paul. Not only that, but he was from the people of Israel as well. So many of these Judaizers were converted Jews. Paul says, no, 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 I'm of pure stock. I was born into the family of Israel. Not only that, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, that, that favored tribe that Moses said that has been favored by God. This is the tribe where Israel got their first king, King Saul. This is the tribe in whose land the holy city rests, Jerusalem. Paul just keeps adding to it. He says, I'm from that tribe. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm as pure as they come. That just emphasizes the previous two and builds on the next three. This is a list of seven things. He says, in regard for the law, Paul's not just a Jew. Paul's a Pharisee. He dedicated his entire life to knowing and understanding and memorizing the law. 
He excelled beyond all of his contemporaries, all of his friends. So much so, he was such a dedicated Pharisee that he made it his life mission to stamp out Christianity. Now, I realize that for us today, we're thinking, how is that a good thing? But you have to remember, to, to, to the Pharisees, to the Jews, when someone comes in and says, the law doesn't mean anything. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than circumcision. Jesus is better than your heritage. Jesus is better than everything. The Pharisees took offense to that. So much so that Paul said they must be against God. And so in, in his worship of God, he sought to destroy the people of God. That's what type of Pharisee he was. And then it says that he followed the law perfectly. He said he was blameless. No, Paul's not calling, calling himself perfect. But what Paul is saying is that every Pharisaical law I followed perfectly. This is me. He lays out his resume for his people. Now, why would Paul do this? Why would Paul give us his spiritual credentials? It actually reminds me of when I gave out my first resume. And this is kind of what credentials are for, right? It's like a resume. Um, I, was, I was graduated from college. I was heading to seminary, and I was trying to get a job. And one of the jobs I had applied for was for a portrait photography position. And it was just a part of a, um, a, a, a chain of portrait photography studios. And I had applied, and they asked for my resume in return. So I remember downloading a template because I had never done a resume at this point. Uh, somehow I made it through college without never doing a resume. And I began to fill it in, like previous experience. Mowed people's grass in middle school and high school. Of course it read, owner-operator of Bates Brothers Lawn Service, right? I mean, that sounds so much better than mowed people's grass in middle school and high school. Uh, and then the next was on their security guard at Clearwater Christian College. They were scared of me when they came in. Dorm supervisor. Like, that was it. I looked at my resume. I looked at my credentials. <laughs> I got nothing. Like, who's going to hire me? Like, I've managed to make it all the way through college, and I have no skill. Like, I was a church ministries major, so what am I going to do? Like, I'm going to tell people about Jesus as they take their picture. They, they don't want to hear that. Somehow, an act of God, I got the job. That was the more amazing part. But the point was, the resume was supposed to be my credentials. Like, this is why you hire me. These are my skills. These are my abilities. These are my accomplishments. You have to hire me. I'm great. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, look, no matter what these Jews are telling you, I'm better. Look at my skills, my abilities. I was better than all of them. And when Paul gets to the end of his resume, look what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had in all those things, in my life pursuit, whatever gain I had for righteousness' sake, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says if being diligent, if being devout, if being dedicated to what you believe is what it takes to get you to heaven, to gain righteousness before God, I had it all. Our spiritual credentials, our church attendance, our Bible reading and prayer and our giving mean nothing to God as it pertains to our personal righteousness. None of it will help you draw closer to God in and of itself. If, if you're resting on your list, if you're resting on your spiritual credentials and your past and your traditions and your separations— You're missing it. The very best spiritual credentials will not get you anywhere near God. 
that leads us into Paul's confession. Paul's confession in verses 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul confesses three things for us here. First, we see that Paul confesses that loss is actually gain. Loss is gain. Let's take a moment, because this is what Paul does, and he he views himself as a spiritual accountant. You see those words counted, gain, loss. he, He makes this ledger, and he has this loss column, and he has a gains column. And so he had in his ledger all of his credentials, right, in the gains column. And he says, when, when I was faced with Christ on the Damascus road, when God called me to salvation, when I saw Christ for who he really was, I realized something. That everything I had gained, I, I needed to take and I needed to move over to the loss column. The, the word in verse 7 says counted. He, he deliberately thought through. He debated he, he added things up. And when he was saved, we transition from previous, prior to salvation. In order to be saved, we must first count all of our spiritual credentials as loss. Because we can't have both. We can't have Christ and all of our good works. That's what the Judaizers are doing. So Paul says, before you can get saved, you must first recognize you have nothing to offer God. You have nothing. You're completely lost. Completely destitute. But when Paul moved these things over to the lost column, and we're going to see in a moment how he accepted Christ, how Christ came to save him, when he, when he moved them over, now he counts in verse 8, now he counts everything as loss. So not just his credentials, but everything. Paul realized that not just his Jewish pharisaical past and what he was counting on for righteousness was lost, but everything he had to offer was God, to God was lost. He realized he was completely spiritual, spiritually bankrupt. But when he looked at Christ, he realized that Christ had everything. It's interesting as he says, I have suffered the loss of all things. and counted them as, as rubbish. Uh, I think the King James Version calls it dung, which is probably a more accurate rendering of that word. It, it's anything, nothing, it, it's worth nothing except good for the sewers. It's good for the sewers. Everything you have to offer God, all it's good for is the sewer. Think about that. That's how Paul views it. He's using this the strong terminology all throughout this chapter 3 of Philippians, and he's trying to help the Philippian church understand their complete and total depravity before a holy and righteous God. So it's at this point when he's counted everything as lost, everything as worthless, that he has to confess something else. Paul confesses that righteousness then is from faith. Righteousness is from faith alone. Look at verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The, The word 
that is used here theologically is the word imputation, to impute, to add to somebody's account. And so for thinking of our, our ledger column, what Paul did is the moment he counted all this as loss, and he depended on the righteousness that can only come through faith in Christ, that watch, it comes from God the Father himself. When he began to place his dependence, his faith, and his trust in Christ alone for his righteousness and his salvation and his standing before God, God took Christ's righteousness and imputed it onto Paul. He, he filled up his bank account. And so when God looked down at Paul, he, he didn't see this, this guy trying his very hardest to earn righteousness before God. And, and God's looking at him going, it doesn't matter what you do, it's not going to work. Instead, now God looks down at Paul and says, he is perfectly righteous as my son is righteous. Because all of Christ's righteousness is given to anyone who denies themselves, picks up the cross, and follows Jesus. That's what he's saying here. Paul has to make this confession that faith, that righteousness, comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul confesses the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is the climax of our text this morning. Everything Paul has said up to this point is leading to this one point. This is, this is the goal of your life and my life as followers of Christ. Watch. The goal of our life is to know Christ. That's what Paul's been leading us to. All throughout this text, all this explanation of spiritual credentials, all of these warnings, all of this understanding of what a Christian is, Paul says, all, all of it, everything I did, I counted as loss, I counted as worthless. Why? for the sake of knowing Christ, for, for the surpassing worth, for, for the value of Christ. See, how we live, how we behave, shows us where we place our value. And Paul says, I was pursuing righteousness before God, but the value was all in myself. But when I, when I turned it over and I placed my faith and my trust in Christ, I placed the value, the surpassing value and worth on Jesus Christ, God saved him. This is the pursuit of every believer. So the question is, if our pursuit, if our goal this year should be to know Christ, what does it mean to know Christ? If you look at the word know in, throughout the Bible, it's easy, as, as we use the word I, knowledge or know, to think of as, as intellectual, as, as filling our heads with more information. But as it pertains to relationships, it has nothing to do with that, actually. Scripture gives many examples of people who claim to, who, who know, who give a, um, an intellectual assent to God, but they don't know him personally. Let me give you an example. We could use the example of the Judaizers. There's clearly one who claimed to know Christ, but they weren't a part of him, as Paul has already shown us. But even stronger example, we could use the devil and his demons, right? Listen to Mark chapter 1, verse 23 through 25. Mark chapter 1. And immediately there was in their synagogues a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? This is the unclean spirit. Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. This unclean spirit, this demon, clearly knew Jesus. I know exactly who you are. And Jesus rebukes him sends him out. I mean, obviously, a knowledge and an understanding of Jesus and who he is doesn't save someone. 
It doesn't make you a part of God's family. You can have all the knowledge of this word. Think, think of the various world religions that know a lot about this book. Think of it. But they don't know Christ, as Paul's talking about here. So what does it mean to know? Paul's talking about an intimate knowledge. To, to be able to walk alongside Christ, to experience Christ. To, to, to feel Christ, for Christ to be with him, to have this, this partnership with Christ. He says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We come to know Christ as followers of Christ. We come to know Christ as we experience the power of his resurrection and share in his suffering. We come to know Christ as we experience the power of his resurrection and share in his suffering. The first one sounds great, doesn't it? Share in the power, uh, experience the power of the resurrection. We, we recognize that at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit, God himself, comes and indwells us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is living inside every single one of us. God's given us this power to be able to obey his word. God's given us this power to be able to say, say no to sin. God's given us this power to be conformed to his image. A- apart from this power residing inside of us, giving us the ability to live for God, to act in such a way that's pleasing to God, we have to be saved. All of our righteousness, we know, are as filthy rags in and of themselves. It is only by the power of his resurrection living inside of us that we may come to know Christ. So Paul counts everything as lost so that he might experience this power inside of his heart, inside of his life, and have Christ living inside of him. But not only that, we grow, we come to know Christ as we share in his suffering. So many people today want to share, to experience the power of Christ in their life, but they want to avoid suffering at all costs. Now, none of us wrote down a New Year's resolution, I want to suffer more this year. It, it didn't happen. But yet Paul says, if your goal is to know Christ, to know Christ means that you are going to experience the power of his resurrection. You're going to experience power over sin. Hey, you're going to, you're going to be able to overcome sin because you have the power of the Spirit living inside you. He's, he's going to show you, reveal to you truth in his word. But you're also going to experience suffering as Christ suffered. We can't be selective in how we follow Jesus. To share in his suffering means to, while we're here on this earth, suffer the same way Christ did. Jesus in the gospel says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself. Sound familiar to count everything as loss? Pick up his cross, share in his suffering, and follow me. This is the call to be a follower of Jesus. And and this is what so many people do. They want the power of Christ. They they want the righteousness of God, the right standing with God, but they want to avoid suffering at all costs. And yet, it is in that suffering that we are able to see and experience the power of the resurrection inside of us. It's it's through that suffering that draws us into a more intimate relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because he suffered for you and for I. We do not suffer alone. 
God's given us the power to do it. He's walking beside us. So as we look at this text, and we look at the very last two lines, we experience the power of his resurrection, and we share in his suffering. Why? We, we do those things now so that we can become like him in his death, that by any means possible, we may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's not questioning whether or not he's going to be raised from the dead. Paul is unsure of how he's going to die. Will I die here on this earth, or will Jesus come again? He isn't, I like, I'm not sure how it's going to be. He, he talked about this earlier in the book of Philippians. Whether I live or die, I'm hard-pressed between the two. Like, I want to go to be with my Savior, but I want to stay here to minister the gospel and to support and encourage you. And Paul says, I don't know how it's going to happen for me. But one thing I do know, I, knew, I do know that if I know Christ now, if I experience the power of his resurrection, if I share in his suffering, I will, I will be with him. I'll be resurrected just like Christ is. So as we think about this truth, this goal of knowing Christ, as we've seen in our text this morning, there's only two groups of people in the text. We have those that are saved and those that are unsaved. So as we seek to apply this to our lives, first let me speak to those of you who are living life based upon your own righteousness. Whether you're ignorant of this truth, that Christ has come and paid the ultimate sacrifice of your sin, like you've never heard the gospel before, you've never heard that you're a sinner in need of Jesus, and that Jesus came to pay that price, and that if you just believe in him and, and trust in him, he will save you and give you the ability to know him. Whether you're rejecting that ignorantly, or, or whether you are like the Judaizers in our text going, yeah, I hear that, but I just want a part of it. I just want to, I want to add something to it. And, and so you've chosen to just understand God, know that Jesus is there, but you are working so hard to separate yourself from everyone else to earn your own righteousness. I would caution you as Paul has this morning. Paul's been there. He's done that. He's experienced it. Paul's clearly shown us that your life, separate from Christ, no matter how you're pursuing it, no matter what your goal is, will lead to death, will lead to separation from God. You cannot earn your own salvation, no matter what you do. And as this book has been, Paul has been teaching throughout this entire book, you'll never experience true joy in your life because joy comes from knowing Christ. My prayer for you this morning, I would ask you this morning, to confess. Confess to Christ. And trust in a faith that comes from God, where God gives you his righteousness, the righteousness of his son, and miraculously saves you who are completely separated from God. If you're unsure of how to do that or you don't know how to accomplish that, talk to any member that's here today. Talk to a friendly face. Talk to one of the pastors. Any of us that were up here this morning, we'd love to be able to sit down with you and explain that more. The other group are followers of Christ, the church of Philippi. We must heed the cautions that were given to us. Our natural human tendency is to default to try harder, do better, be more. It's, just, it's our natural tendency. It's the world we live in. We want to make our resume better. I went to this school, I studied this much, I read this much, I do this much. You don't do that much. I'm more holy than you. 
Like, just be, be cautioned that this is our natural tendency. Think about what is the goal of your life? Think about your New Year's resolutions list. Did you have any spiritual goals this year? What are you doing with that? What was the purpose of that? What are you seeking to accomplish in those goals? Certainly, I hope that we all have spiritual goals, and I hope that we have a plan to accomplish those goals. So if you have that list, let me encourage you to do something with that list. At the top of your list, if it's reading the Bible more and praying more and going to church more and giving more, like whatever that might be, this list that you think is going to attain righteousness and be pleasing in God's eyes, here's what you need to do with that list. At the top of it, put to know Christ. Maybe underneath to know Christ, experience the power of the resurrection this year. Share in the suffering of my Savior this year. Now below those things, if that is your main priority, if that's your main goal, now how are we going to seek to know Christ this year? How can I grow in my experience with him? How can I grow my knowledge and understanding of him? Now underneath that, you can put those means of grace. You can indent and put them underneath knowing Christ and say, yes, it is through the living word of God where God speaks to me. He shares himself with me and God will reveal himself here that I may know Christ by reading his word. That's a worthy goal this year. We must be in the word of God this year. Yes, we, we commune with God in prayer. Put that under knowing Christ. Why do you pray? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you come to church? Why are you here this morning? Is it to attain righteousness or is it to grow in your understanding of who Christ is so that you might know him more deeply, know him more intimately, and live for him this year? See, God cares about our heart. God cares about our heart. God wants us to live a life of worship for him, to know him and the power of his resurrection and share in the suffering of his son so that one day we might attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for these truths. We are so thankful that we do not have to run ourselves ragged, earning righteousness in your eyes. We praise you that Christianity is not a list of do's or don'ts. Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about a relationship that is centered on who you are and what you have done for us. We praise you for the righteousness that you've given us, that we are perfectly righteous in Christ because Christ is perfectly righteous. There's nothing we can add to it. So, Lord, guard our hearts from thinking that we can be better simply by doing more. Lord, may we have pure motives to pursue you, to know you, and to read your word. We thank you and we praise you for Jesus this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.